Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Our guest today is a perfect example of the kind of combinations of humanities and science in a single person. Linda Holiday is the founder and CEO of Cydia. Linda grew up in a family of engineers but decided to go her own way and pursue design in college. She was able to use her home-brewed love of engineering and math together with her sense of design to start two companies and build a very unique understanding of the intersection of data, engineering, and the human. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast. And I'm very excited to have Linda Holiday, who is the founder and CEO of Cydia. And we're actually talking to her from her office. Welcome, Linda. Hi, great to be here. Thanks. You're right in New York City, right? I am. You'll hear sirens, no doubt. <laughs> well, that's what, you know, it's a, it's a soundscape. It's, it's, it's all good. Right? So that's the fun thing about a podcast. Yes. So, Linda, it is great to have you on here today. And, you know, one of the things I always start with is, is I like to humanize the people I talk to, learn a little bit about you. So, I mean, you have done a lot in the last few years. You started a couple of companies. You've been an angel investor, you know, done a bunch of different things over the last, last several years. So just talk a little bit about how did you get to where you are and what's kind of what's your story? Well, I like to explain myself these days by claiming to be homeschooled as an engineer because my father was an electrical engineer, my grandfather, my brother, my husband, and his father, all engineers. And wow. um, yeah, weird. I say, you know, we had to learn the right way to do everything. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> we got grilled on square roots at the dinner table. Really? But okay. yes. So that made me want to go to art school, even though I was really good at science <laughs> and math. <laughs> And I did. And my dad was yelling from the front porch, I'm not paying for this because he had other ideas for me. And, and he didn't. <laughs> so, and then I studied design and I fell in love with design because it's kind of the application of art to problems, right? It's a problem solving discipline. And I was actually then the first designer to be admitted to Wharton. And again, thank you, science and math. I wouldn't have gotten in otherwise, I'm sure. But there I found this other discipline called system sciences, and mm. it was just another form of design. And so I fell in love with that. You know, there's a lot of buzz these days about design thinking, and it's not really just adding humans to the process. It's a different way of looking at problems. It's a different way of looking at complex problems with a lot of interrelationships. And so were there a, when you were a designer award, I mean, was that any, did you feel there was any sort of like a friction there or was it kind of a natural transition for you when you, when you found this system design stuff you're talking about? I think I would have if I didn't have such a strong science and math background. And for example, the first semester Wharton was five math classes. Really? Wow. They all had different names, you know, like accounting <laughs> and finance <laughs> and quantitative methods, but they were all math classes. And so you really develop a second language you know, which is speaking mm. through numbers. Yeah. When you have that skill, you can actually then, you know, advocate for a lot of things by converting them into math. Mm -hmm. So I think my whole career has benefited from, you know, being able to make a case for things that a lot of designers or creative people or musicians, you know, can't really do because they don't have that second language. Hmm. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. I, I've, I've definitely seen that before, that there's a greater appreciation now for bringing those things to, together. We were talking a little bit about that, being able to bring that science, mathematics, engineering way of thinking with a more design thinking, humanist thinking, you know, however you want to express it. But I mean, that seems to be more important now than ever, right? 
Yeah. And, you know, math is kind of a Rosetta Stone. It can express almost anything. Like the universe isn't math, but we can express it through math. You know, so, you know, by being able to translate a lot of ideas into numbers, we can actually find common ground as opposed to staying on separate sides. Mm -hmm. That's a... Yeah, it's an interesting and putting. Yeah, I, I think that was definitely. I was. A, I I studied physics myself, and that was that was one of the big things. Is like that mathematics was that common language that we could talk about things and actually get on the same page. So that actually that actually makes a lot of sense. So you you went to school, you know, got an MBA, right? And so what did you do after that? I mean, is you is that when you started your first business? Was it right right out of school, or what what was that like? No, then I went to work for cable television, which was the old new media. <laughs> and <laughs> it was just being invented. I'm old. So it was just being invented at that time. And it was really exciting because you could kind of do anything you could think of. It was fun days. And we were figuring everything out. But then that got a little bit routine, too. And I'm somebody who likes to be in pain, I guess, and do things that are new and hard. <laughs> and whenever it gets routine, I have to kind of leave. So... I left that and I went into production, which was pretty much a whim because I said, what's the most fun thing I do? Make television commercials. So I went and did that, which was kind of dumb because I was offered a really big job at Comcast being in those days, it was so small. The head of programming and marketing was one head count. So that's how old it was. But I went into production and then got really interested in a lot of the art of making things that way. And then that led to this company I started called Medical Broadcasting Company, which was actually kind of a consultative resource for the healthcare industry with an emphasis on all the digital technology that was emerging. So we did a lot of weird stuff like XML systems for business intelligence and, you know, disease modeling. I worked with giant data sets like Fair Isaac, et cetera, and got a tremendous amount of experience in that. And... It was so dynamic for so long, and we built a couple other companies and launched them from inside that. But then it also got fairly routine, and I sold, my partner and I sold, and became an angel investor, you know, too young to retire, afraid of getting (laughs) irrelevant, (laughs) so, and loving entrepreneurs, you know, so I worked with a lot of big companies, and, you know, the antidote to big companies is entrepreneurs. So that was really exciting for a while. Yeah. And then I say I got repetitive stress injuries. I'm like, didn't I already say this? Because <laughs> they're all kind of <laughs> suffering the same young problems. And, you know, I wanted new, bigger, harder problems. Yeah. So I kind of stopped doing that. And I started writing a book on running creative businesses. And I realized that what I wanted to make wasn't a book, right? That I was used to using all kinds of weird and wonderful communications tech. And then we still had the book as the primary way, you know, we push new ideas into the world. So I started making software for that. And here I am years later, lots of money later. And I have the software for that, but no time to write the book. Well, you know, it's a, it's the, it's how you arrive at the idea. You're and I, and I can definitely appreciate your path on these things. That's at least the way I, I justify all the different positions I've moved in. You know, you, you, you want to discover new things and, and try new things out. I think that's a good way to understand better the world you're in. So that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And now when you say, so you're writing this book and you, you decide to, you started writing the software, talk a little bit more. What, what was the problem you were trying to solve with the software that became Cydia? I mean, what, 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 what gap did you see that you really thought you were going to be able to fill? 
well, here's where my inner engineer comes through. You know, I saw this problem of getting new ideas that are made by a certain set of people and validated by a certain set of people more widely distributed and widely mm-hmm. held as a throughput problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, I made it up because I don't have data, but I think it takes about 17 years for a new idea to be reasonably widely held. And that's yeah. too long. The world moves too fast now. So how do you take that 17 years and collapse it, hopefully, by more than half, right? So we had this mm-hmm. really old, slow process, which is a big, inert book gets made. Maybe it's kind of academic. Then maybe somebody more, you know, better communicator like Malcolm Gladwell comes along and makes it more accessible. Then it gets picked up in magazines. Then it gets added to school curriculum. You know, it's a cascade of, you know, from this kind of giant, imporous corpus down into the kind of granular present media that most of us have access to. So how do you collapse that thing? How do you put smaller ideas that have more relevance and availability in front of more people? It's a distribution problem. Yeah. So at the same time, we had this internet going through this kind of phase shift, right? It was pages and websites and applications. And now, you know, that was the transitional internet. Now we have the actual mature native born internet, which is small pieces that can be reconfigured with intelligence. And every new company makes that, right? That is the framework for a modern company to get started. But a lot of our old media legacy companies, they're all built in that kind of impenetrable hole or a page based mentality. And so what's needed is a system for moving all those small pieces of content, ideas, case studies, you know, the molecules, atoms too small, (laughs) more like the molecules. How do you move them around and let them be discoverable inside the channels people are actually consuming content in? Yeah. I call it the discovery layer. It's like a new thing. We didn't have it in this way before. So our software, Cydia, is built to kind of rock that discovery layer you know, you kind of make things into small pieces of content and then you can distribute them in any channel. That does make a lot of sense. Cause you know, one of the things you're, you're saying that, that strikes me there, that that's part of the, it seems like the transition, particularly if you tie it to data is that you, you started off particularly early on in the internet and even, you know, with other forms of media where these more generically targeted things, you know, I'm going to target at this larger Clumps. group of people. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I can't do anything different than that. And so, you've been able to develop these things over the last, you know, couple of decades where you can, you know, take the context of the person. I think I heard somebody describe it as like their digital lifestyle and actually actually take the context of who they are and give them a different experience. And that seems a part of what you're doing is you're, you know, allowing to match the content and match the experience to who the people are who are actually looking at it. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, well, one kind of weird distinction is what's the difference between data and content? because kind of everything's data now, but there's so much intelligence and money going after how to get smarter about those lifestyles. Who's who, who wants what, you know, how do we find people? You know, it's a very vibrant sector, but there's almost no attention being paid to the payloads, right? Once you Mm. know that about somebody, now what? And, you know, I'm afraid watching technology evolve over these decades that it's a familiar movie where uh, when we finish this part, then we realize we need that next part. Yeah. And again, since you're a musician, it's more about 
you know, I think people see that as a targeting issue. Like I need to find Ben, you know, he's looking Mm. for a car or something like that, but it's not a sniper shot, right? It's more like a shotgun. Like I need to, I need to meet Ben's kind of changeable nature with a set of things he might be interested in. I can't really be good enough now and maybe ever because people are a little hard to predict. Yeah. No matter how good the technology gets, we change. So we have to get close. We don't have to be perfect. And the payload has to like be reasonable about what people are really like and deliver, you know, something that's got a chance of being relevant. The way you describe it almost, I, I think I've heard somebody else say this before, but there's, we're not really sometimes one person. We're actually multiple people. There's there's multiple aspects. You know, I'm at the same time. I'm a I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a husband. You know, the simple stuff. But I'm also, you know, I might be. I, I really like this type of TV show at the same time that I like to play guitar or something like that. And all those coexist together. And it's not like you, when you're looking at that context, you you don't view it all as one big you know jumble. Here you say, okay, let's let's find that interest. Let's find that community that person's in and be able to target to that. Exactly. You think it was. It was Walt Whitman. We contain multitudes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think there are a lot of people who think we're we are machines and we're predictable and we're rational and we're li- we're reliable. And I think they need to take a few other courses. <laughs> well, you know that that's an interesting connection there because you you and I were talking a little bit about this, but I think in talking all these so many people now about about data, one of the themes that I've found to be so interesting right now is this connection between the human and the data. Because you know, to, to your point, the internet and all these technologies were invented primarily out of, really out of the out of the sciences and then into engineering and were very almost utilitarian and, and focused on the technology stack. And like, what can we do with the technology? And a lot of these things we're running into right now are, you know, in terms of like, you know, technology gone wrong and bias and all these different things are really about, can we bring the human back to the data like how, how do we find ways of you know you, you and I are talking about the uh, book sense making with Madsberg and one of the things mm-hmm. he talks about is like getting the social scientists to talk to the engineers and it, it seems to be partly that's what we're what we're getting at here is how do you how do you take the understanding of who human people are in their complexity their wonderfulness and also their you know the crassness uh, nastiness everything you understand <laughs> the whole people and put that in the context of the technology too. And those don't, those don't, we can pretend like they're different, but they're really not. They're, they're not disconnected, I guess is what I'm saying. They're, they're connected with we want them to be or not. Yeah. And so much of science, you know, in this kind of hangover from this, you know, reductionism, you know, wants to put people in these really tight little categories. And even to the extent of illuminating all the, you know, hard to understand or maybe unpleasant aspects of us, right? Those don't count or those shouldn't be on the table. You know, for years, economics was the study of markets, trying to separate markets from humans. Right. And that didn't work so well. I think their, you know, predictive value recently has been close to zero. So they had to reinvent the profession and call it behavioral economics, meaning we're adding people in. Yeah. Well, you know, they could have saved some time if you ask me, because you don't really have markets without people. So, you know, there's been a long history hundreds of years of thinking about us in very mechanical ways and eliminating all those things like emotion that are hard to measure and hard to incorporate into models. So we're, yeah. we're just now to the point where we're seeing the limitations of that kind of thinking. I think the other thing you kind of scratched there was, you know, this, like the difference between say, you know, 
Google and, and Apple, right? So there's a kind of tech stack out. We have this. What can we use it for? What, how can we take it to market? What kind of problem can it be applied to? Which is a perfectly legitimate way of making stuff. Then there's the Steve Jobs thing. It's like, I bet people want to have blank, 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 right? Right. And then he goes and makes that thing based on people. So one is tech up and the other one is people down and design thinking is more people down. Yeah. And you have to, you have to find a way to meet it, meet in the middle. I mean, I mean, I guess in particular in the, the first company you started, it sounds like you were, you were already dealing with there with this kind of idea of big data and taking these data sets and trying to apply them. And, and, and now with Cydia, you're, you're kind of delving into that again. How do you, from in particular, from your perspective, actually running a company and actually trying to make this practical and not just talking about it, how how do you actually see us make that transition? I mean, how do we? Because because in particular, the big data, you know, people don't talk about it as much anymore. But big big data was this thing where you know I remember that story about Target being able to predict whether you're pregnant or not. I mean, there mm-hmm. was all this both promising and really creepy way of using data to understand people. And we've made a transition out of that where it seems like those a lot of those efforts failed because they didn't they didn't achieve what they were supposed to achieve. They, you know, they maybe there weren't the right people working on it or whatever it was. And now, like you said, there's kind of a change going on. So very practically from your point, I mean, how do you how do we make that change? I mean, what is that what does that look like on the ground, you think? Well, you know, there's so much breadth and complexity in what you just described. So, you know, I think one reasonable approach to all of it is that this kind of marriage of data and goals and people and all that is a multidisciplinary effort, right? You Mm -hmm. can't have people who just understand data building and launching things that are going to interact with complex human systems and expect too much. Yeah. You know, like look at these, was it Tay, the Microsoft natural language thing and you know how heinous it's kind of, mistakes were racist comments and reflecting fascism, et cetera. You know, so I think we've seen enough evidence of the kind of mistakes that are made when the group who's trying to figure things out is too insular, right? Yeah. So diversity is an important aspect. I think also, I don't know why, but we're so easily persuaded that something that's converted to numbers or better yet has decimal points is somehow accurate. Yeah, And I, I say like, you know, ask me what I weigh, weigh me, <laughs> there are two different numbers, you know, ask me what I want to weigh in a year or what I intend to weigh in a year. It's a third number, right? So a lot of data is self-reported and it's dirty and, you know, unless you know how, you can't really use it well. So again, being able to use data requires a certain amount of context and that context has to include people and the thing that the data reflects. Yeah, no, that makes it, we, we call that in physics, precision versus accuracy. Yeah. It's like you could be very precise and totally not be accurate. It's like, I always, I always laugh when people, you know, give these numbers that are down to the decimal point. And it's like, how'd you get that? Well, I estimated that. That, that was actually what always used to drive me crazy when I took a couple of business classes when I was getting my computer science degree. And I go, I go over to the business school and they'd be like, you have this crazy formula and uh, we calculated. I don't know, like how did you how did you make that work? I was like, what's that variable over there? Oh yeah, well we just make that variable up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but sometimes you have to, you know. Like one of my favorite examples of a design problem is like how to make something, say a tea kettle, right? And yeah. you have to make it beautiful. You have to make it 
utilitarian. It has to perform the function of a tea kettle. It has to be cheap to manufacture. It has to be easy to ship. It has to use certain materials. You know, so satisfying those, you know, what are called mutually exclusive variables is the essence of a design problem. You know, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you run across all of those vectors and solve something, you know, simultaneously? It's a different kind of a process. And part of that expertise is what is beauty? Mm-hmm. How do you know if a tea kettle is beautiful? Like someone on that team better have a clue. <laughs> when I guess it's in the eyes of the people you're trying to sell that kettle to. Yeah. And so you can decide in advance who that is and, and maybe test it against them. But then sometimes you get to market and you find out it was a very different group or, you know, you can be surprised in lots of different ways. But that that kind of assessment, what is beauty, gets lumped into this category called intuition, which is, you know, it's a really large and undistinguished category now. It won't be for long because I think we're starting to understand how much power is hiding in there. Mm-hmm. But the person who knows, you know, there was an old, saying about how do you know that a painting is beautiful and the art critic answers by looking at 10,000 paintings. (laughs) So, you know, you have to have the time to do that. It's an, you might have a talent, but you also have an expertise. Yeah. You know, there's one thing that Maud Spirit had in his his book, Sense Making, that I remember, and he he was quoting another, I think, well-known model about maturity model, but that's it, re- it reminds me of that where you you can advance in terms of mastery, you know, from just a beginner to kind of uh, mid-level where you, you're still following rules, but you you kind of understand what's going on. You get to this point of a master where everything's intuitive, everything's natural, it's almost instinctual. But the reason why it is, is because you've become a master because you spent so much time either looking at... Incorporating it into your own, you know, cognition, into your own memory, et cetera. Exactly. Well, you know, and, and, and the reason I brought that up is I think what's, what's interesting in what you're saying, and it goes back to how you figure out what people to involve in these kind of projects. I, I think in particular in Silicon Valley where I'm at and just in general, there's a, there's a sense of like, okay, if you get a bunch of young people in a the room, they're all smart and, and they work hard, then you can solve any problem. But then when you get to this kind of thing like intuition and, and things about like being able to instinctually understand a problem and understand what's going on. A lot of that only comes with age and experience. It's not like you can, you know, 22 years old out of college, you're going to be able to, you know, understand how the world works. So you haven't really experienced it yet. So there's a, there's a sense, sense too, to solve these problems that we're talking about. You actually have to have people that have actually experienced those things and actually have the maturity to understand them. I mean, does that ring true to you? Oh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's been so strange to have a culture that thinks anything to do with experience is a negative, mm-hmm. right? And I understand this kind of child's mind. And again, I keep referring you know, to you as a musician because I know you understand these things personally that you have to, you know, kind of as a creative person, continuously hack yourself so that you don't go to the routine things, yeah. right? Your mind kind of wants to do that as one of its factory settings, And so people who are creative, you know, on purpose have actually found ways to, you know, keep their minds open in ways that some other people might not. And so with, you know, an open mind over a long period of time, it acquires tremendous amount of of value, call it experience. And, you know, you look at a lot of the kind of weaknesses or mistakes that have been made in Silicon Valley lately, I'll just 
pick on Uber, but there's plenty of them. <laughs> you know, there some, you know, really naive blind spots about reputation led them into a position where they may never recover from it. Yeah. Right. They were dominant. And, you know, I know a lot of people that would rather walk than take an Uber and it's going yeah. to take a long time to heal those wounds. So, you know, it was pretty short sighted to not have some more senior people who understood just how long that reputation damage lingers and what it means to the whole business. I mean, mm. everyone's learned that in other industries. It's not like they're the first one to make a mistake. No. Well, in particular with with you being a, a CEO, like a part of what you're talking about there is the way that they decided to hire people. I mean, that's it's I mean, it's been in the news about, you know, Uber and other places where they the culture they built and the way that they hired people and who they hired affected a lot of, you know, it's like, well, of course this was the outcome that you were going to get. I mean, as a as a CEO there of Cydia, I mean, how how are you taking a lot of what we're saying now and applying it when you're actually, you were building out a team and you're deciding the culture you're going to build? How did you inculcate that kind of, I don't know, call it diversity or, you know, breadth of experience? How, how, did, how did you go about that? Again, I want to cite experience because, you know, I have made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> I remember them and try not to make them again. And one of my favorite mistakes is all your weaknesses sure as shit are going to show up in your team, right? So if you don't address your own weaknesses, you know, you're going to encounter your, your, you know, not so great self over and over. So it really forces you to change yourself, right? To change your team. Mm -hmm. And then I think every culture has strengths and weaknesses and letting something get too strong is always got a risk associated with it. And, you know, it's, Back to the original conversation we're having, some things are easy to measure and some things are hard to measure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's easy to measure is Uber's killing it and look at the, the growth in drivers, growth in rides, growth in profitability, et cetera. But what's hard to measure is, you know, what's our reputation in the world? How is that going to affect us over years, right? That's mm -hmm. actually extremely expensive to measure. It can be measured, yeah. costs millions of dollars to measure something like that well. So people go forward without enough data. And so you mm. learn to just pay attention to the things that are hard to measure, but you can kind of guess about. Well, well you know, to that, to that point too, you know, a part of what you're talking about there is the, the reputation and trust you build until you're, you know, I think you, you, you nailed it with there is that you, it takes years to build, to build trust and, and, you know, literally minutes to, to lose it with, with, with a customer. So, and I, I would think in particularly, with what you're working in, you know, now where in particular where you're, you know, in the kind of advertising marketing area and content area where you're actually, you know, molding content for people to see based on their own context. So you also get into that aspect of trust as well. I mean, is that something that you've had to grapple with is in how you, you know, maintain the trust and privacy of these users' data and the companies you're working with? I mean, how does that, how have you actually encountered that yourself? So most of the city of customers are using our platform for, content marketing, training, HR, comms, and sales. And so mm -hmm. that tends to be a part of the entire universe that's a little less sensitive, hmm. right? We're not, we're not holding anybody's financial information. We don't have a lot of context about the actual customers. So we are in, you know, maybe an enviable position of not having a lot of risk in that way. Our customers, on the other hand, are managing some things that are more sensitive. So they have that issue with their customers. So we're 
our customers are companies and their customers are consumers. So we're a little bit, you know, one step removed from that kind of problem. No, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. We are the same way at Assumo Logic. You're helping other people manage that. So that, that, that does make sense. And we actually think that the data needs to be owned by the customers, right? Yeah. The first and second party data, we see ourselves as Kevin Kelly says, a big complex system is built from smaller, simpler systems. So we're the container delivery system for content. We clip into intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, one of our customers, GE, for example, 16 industries, right? They have thousands and thousands of data sources and they're going to change daily. So they need a system where they can actually put sentences together, right? I know this. I want to deliver that to there. And so we're the delivery system for the content, but the, we're not the brains. No, that, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess that's where, that's where things are at right now. It's a, it's a, you, there's such complex systems that are being managed with all this data. That's, that's, that's the way these kind of having these vertically aligned systems doesn't make as much sense anymore. You got to find ways of actually, you know, giving a specific tool set that customers can overlay on processes that they already have and kind of pump their own context and data into that and be able to do that seamlessly. Exactly. So, so one thing as we kind of wrap this up a little bit, so you, you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about data and its impact and, you know, and how, how things are, you know, how this, how it intersects with society, particularly with your, kind of unique background what do you what are you seeing some trends of everything we've been talking about that you think people aren't seeing you know what what do you what do you think are some some things going on kind of maybe under the surface that are maybe going to pop up and not too long that you you're seeing and that you don't think are really coming to the surface is there anything that's interesting you right now that way yeah something i'm like barely understanding myself which is you know we're kind of at the collapse phase of an era where I think we brought it on ourselves because, you know, we forced everything into these kind of linear and binary structures. Almost no data is discrete, Yeah. right? We force it into increments so that we can calculate it, so that we can calculate it with like linear and binary systems, mm-hmm. right? The, the biggest hammer ever invented. But it doesn't really reflect, you know, what's underneath it. It's It's false. And so many other things are getting so delicate or complex, that that binary force is our problem. You know, we have to let the more quantum, you know, continuous set of characteristics be expressed. Hmm. And so lots of things are failing, like it's not obvious, but even what's happening with social media and, you know, polarization, like is something good or bad, right? That's binary thinking, yeah. I mean, I'm not a Trump fan, but he says a few things I like. <laughs> I have a hard time myself not judging him entirely and throwing him into a 100% bad column because that's what we've been taught to do. Hmm. And so, you know, w- this kind of either or mindset is so ingrained in this these generations. It might take the next generation to actually free itself from that because it's actually contributing to a lot of our problems. You know, mm. we, we want to square off. We want two sides. Look what's happening, yeah. you know. So I think that's kind of like an insidious substrate underneath a lot of our problems. We, we know one thing that comes to mind when you say that, Linda, is I think, tell me if this makes sense to you, because I, I totally agree that there's a lot of life is a continuum. Life is a, you know, there's, it's, it's, you know, we naturally as humans want to lock it down to very black and white because that makes it easier to understand. I, I feel like it's probably 
fairly natural, but it's the world itself is a continuum. But when you start applying artificial intelligence and machine learning and some of these new techniques to this world of data, it's basically taking in at scale and almost automating the putting of things in boxes. So a, a lot of these problems that we've been seeing with artificial intelligence and bias and things like that seem to me is it's basically taking what you just said, our, you know, kind of reductionism and wanting to put things neatly in black and white, you know, boxes that we can understand. All these new technologies are doing right now is basically automating that and making it happen a lot faster. And in some sense, maybe that's actually bringing this to a head is because now we're seeing, well, you know, I, when I was just doing this at a slower pace, it wasn't as obvious, you know, how biases results are. But once you shove it into an algorithm, then suddenly it's like, wow, okay, now it's blatantly obvious. This and, and this is scary. Does that, does that resonate with you? I think you're so right. Because I was just thinking about this this morning, we've got like this, you know, go like the alpha, whatever it's called, the alpha zero program, I think that beat yeah. the humans at go, you know, it didn't do what prior programs had done, which was just ingest every possible move and be faster at accessing them it actually learned to play itself yeah, and, you know, was original in our definition of original, but not many things are like go, right? Like look at soccer. If you're trying to apply the same kind of AI, you know, a good soccer player not only has that inventory of plays in their head, that's where the machine's great and we're not so great, <laughs> but it reads every player on the field and kind of knows who knows where I am, who's open, who's moving which direction. I can tell by body language and gaze and momentum, like so many like subconscious calculations that this, you know, 150 neurons machine learned for 40 years, you know, is great at, but how is that computer going to cross over from marbles on a board you know, to soccer players on a field, like think about how big that step is and what's involved, mm. you know, so we're trying this now with self-driving, you know, vehicles, right? And yeah. I think it's really applicable because when I'm driving, I see that mom with the stroller and she's not looking at me and I see, yeah. right. I know instantly whether people know I'm there or not for 40 people on a corner. Yeah. Well, you know, to that point too, Linda, with that, I think an important distinction, what you're saying too, is it's not only do you see that there's a mother with a buggy, is that you actually, you actually have a moral understanding of that. It's like, it would be really bad for me to hit that, you know, yeah, that has with a, a buggy because it. they have worth. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and the problem is like AI is right now to, you know, use Modsberg's expression is like, they don't, they don't give a damn yet. Like they don't actually care enough. They, they, uh, cause that's not where they're at. So it's part of what you're talking is it's not only taking all the data and processing it, it's also actually having that human sense of caring about the results, right? Right. Two super hard problems to solve, right? Mm -hmm. Go doesn't have those. Yeah. So we continuously make this mistake of saying, because a machine's good at what we're bad at, it's better than us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's better at the things that we're terrible at. Like, Cydia is named Cydia because we are rock stars in spatial and three-dimensional space. You can get around a city the size of New York and 10 kinds of transportation, multiple floors. You know, you're just, you just know how to do it. You could have not been here 10 years and you know how to do it, but you can only remember 10 phone numbers. Hmm. You know, computers can be way better than you at that. 
That you, well, you, you beat me too. I was going to ask you what the company because I forgot to ask before. So that's perfect. No, I, I think, I think you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it really is about that complexity. And I think there's a sense when, when I was studying physics way back when you, you, you used to always, you know, joke is like, I can solve, you know, a problem about a, a chicken if I assume that the chicken is a perfectly round sphere with that is entirely smooth in a, you know, a place with no atmosphere, then I can solve the problem of what the chicken, you know, how the chicken will cross the road. So it's, it's basically, you can't always just reduce all the problems down to these very binary, you know, reductionist models, because then you don't really understand what's going on, right? And we've done that routinely, because we've created these little, you know, belief systems that say, well, that other stuff doesn't matter, you know, that human stuff is not scientific, yeah. Right. And so we push it off the chalkboard because we don't know how to assign a variable. And that's why our models are weak. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can't you can't expect good results if you your models don't even reproach reality. Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been a fascinating discussion, Linda. I, I mean, I think what, what you guys are doing at City is fascinating. I think in particular, you know, the the kind of breadth of experience you bring to that problem, I think is really indicative of the kind of the way we need to problem solve in the future is bringing that human design thinking side together with a with the engineering side, and that's why we're going to solve some of these really hard problems. So I've I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Me too. It was great, and thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely, and thanks everybody for listening to the Master Data Podcast. And check us out on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and go rate us so other people can find us and uh, listen as well. Thank you for listening. Masters of Data is brought to you by SumoLogic. SumoLogic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. SumoLogic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.